0: Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. Meet me in Genesis chapter 2. If you have your physical Bible with you this morning, this is a really easy one to find. It's right there at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, as we continue and also land the plane on this conversation that we've been in now for over a year called counterculture. Genesis chapter 2. Beginning in verse 22, where we read this, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib He had taken out of the man, and He brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why. This is really the key verse for us this morning. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife, the man and his wife, were both naked and they felt no shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word and that it continues to speak to us uh, through now thousands of years. People have opened these scriptures and encountered you, heard your voice through them. God, we are grateful for this gift. Would you take all of our stuff that we bring into this moment, into this space, whether we are uh, distracted, frustrated, hurting, concerned, anxious, maybe we've had a great week, we're excited about a variety of different things, whatever those things are, God, would you take them and hold them for us so that we can be fully in this moment, present in this moment, tuned into your Spirit, We'll be able to hear your voice speaking to us today and then give us the courage to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this is the final week of this conversation called Counter Culture. And I said we've been in it for over a year. We haven't been you know, continuously in this for over a year, but we did start this a year ago. Remember, the premise of this conversation is that the early church, the ecclesia, and we're beginning to know the Ekklesia uh, pretty well, right, through our journey in the Book of Acts over the last weeks and months. The ecclesia grew from this weird little Jewish sect, this group of about 120 people scared out of their minds, hiding out in a room with the curtains closed, grew from that into this empire-ending global movement, not by being uh, cozy, with the Roman Empire and Roman culture, but by being different. By being different, by telling a different story, by being a counter-culture. The quote that we've come back to again and again from theologian Rodney Stark is this one. The Roman Empire was stingy with their resources and promiscuous with their bodies. They gave nobody their money and everybody their body. And along came the Christians, the little... Jesus is, and they gave practically no one their bodies and everybody their money. So when we kick this off last fall, we spent more time on the generous with the resources part. We, we were digging into the biblical worldview of shalom, of uh, the kingdom of God, God's heart for justice, how his heart breaks over the injustice that we see in our world. This fall, we're looking at the other side of that quote, the stingy, with our bodies, and we began a couple of weeks ago with this big picture framework, right? The truth that God exists as relationship. What the church has named for the last 2,000 years as Trinity, this perfectly loving, self-sacrificial community of three in oneness, three persons in one being. God exists as community, as relationship. This has massive implications for our understanding of reality, for what it means to be human beings created in His image. That's the foundation for this part of the conversation. From there, though, we've moved into exploring two very practical uh, life stages, relationships, statuses, singleness, and marriage. These, These things that sometimes can be contentious or even set against one another, especially in the church. So last week we looked at singleness, and I just want to say thank you to those of you who who gave feedback, got a lot of feedback on that teaching. And I appreciate the ways that you guys are thinking about this, engaging with this, going further with this conversation. Want to continue to invite and challenge you to do that. And we have a resource uh, available. uh, You can find it very easily once again on the webpage and the app, but a lot of things there to kind of jump into for further exploration and uh, take advantage of that. Now this week we are turning our attention to marriage. And this is interesting because uh, marriage in our cultural moments is in an interesting place. Marriage rates have actually hit historic lows at the beginning of the 21st century. There were eight marriages for every 1,000 people. Now, in the last year, there's about six per 1,000 people. We see a dip in marriage rate. And yet at the same time, during that same 20-year period, the amount of money spent on weddings has increased from about 20,000 in the year 2000 up towards 36, 38, even $40,000 per wedding. Interestingly enough, costs have uh, dipped significantly since the pandemic hit, but up until that point you had this sort of alternate trajectories, right, where we're spending more and more money on the wedding ceremony but getting married less and less often which demonstrates, I think this speaks to the ambivalence that we have towards marriage in our culture. We still sense that it's really important. We argue about it. We have big cultural fights about what marriage means. We still believe that marriage is part of a happy and fulfilled life, and we certainly seem to love weddings and spending money on weddings, but we don't want marriage to get in the way of our careers, of our fun, of our freedom. So similar to last week, we're going to take a look at the American claim that a well-lived life has romance and sex at its center and how that is countered by the scriptural claim that a well-lived life has formation, has discipleship in the way of Jesus at its center. So to be countercultural and married is to be formed as a disciple of Jesus, just as it was uh, for those of us who are single. To be countercultural and single is to be formed as a disciple of Jesus. This conversation ultimately is about our formation in the ways of Jesus. Now, the fundamental question that I think ties these two conversations together is this What kind of story? What kind of story are you telling with your life? What kind of story are you telling? with your life. What story does your marriage tell people about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Now quick review. Remember Paul's words from last week, first from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, honor God with your bodies. And then a chapter later, he says each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. So again, back to kind of the bigger picture for just a moment. The goal here it, in digging into these two things in this countercultural conversation is not about you know which one is more important or should I pursue singleness or marriage do we elevate one over the other no the goal here is honoring god with our bodies is being conformed to the image of christ christ in us and us in christ remember john chapter 17 from week 1 the pursuit Whatever stage of life we might be in is formation in the ways of Jesus. So, what kind of story are you telling with your life? What kind of story is your marriage telling? Let's go back to the beginning, that passage we read just a moment ago in Genesis chapter 2. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Singleness has something to teach us about the relational nature of the universe. Remember that quote from Christina Hitchcock, that singleness is a sign that points us towards the centrality of the church, the grounding of our hope and trust in God. Well, in a similar way, marriage is a sign. It gives us a picture of the relational nature of the universe. I want us to focus in for a moment on that phrase from Genesis chapter two, one flesh. Two very, very important truths here. First, we are embodied beings, right? Those words, honor God with your bodies. We express the image of God in our bodies, our fleshness. And then second, we have this picture here of oneness, of unity, right? One flesh. There's something about unity and oneness that helps us express the image of God. Now, later in the Old Testament, we get one of the most famous prayers in all of the Bible. It's a prayer that Jesus quotes in his, in his teachings. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Again, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, that should sound familiar to you. But I want us to think again about the first part of that. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew word for one is echad. If you're watching along this morning, say that with me. It's a fun word to say, echad. The Lord is one, the Lord is echad. Now in Genesis chapter 2, when we read that phrase, one flesh, the Hebrew word for one is, everybody say it with me, echad. So, if singleness points us towards the relational truths of community and church and trust and hope. Marriage points us towards the relational truths of oneness and unity. It gives us a picture of what God is like. What kind of story are you telling with your life? What kind of story does your marriage tell? Does it tell a story of unity, of oneness? Now, similar to last week, the picture itself invites us into some practices, some postures, some things to embrace that can contribute deeply to our formation in the likeness of Christ. So I want to begin with kind of a theological statement, then move to a formational statement, and then into a couple of practical things, again, following that pattern we set last, last week. So first, we embrace marriage as a formational sacrament, just as we embrace Singleness as a formational sacrament. Again, some fancy theological language there, but there's some things about the sign, right? The the story that marriage tells, this idea of oneness and unity that are so important uh, to us in our formation in the ways of Jesus. Marriage is not just about romance and fulfillment and life goals, you know, checking that, that box off of things to do. It is a sign, it is an embodiment of the community of God. Two distinct. Persons becoming one flesh, two becoming akkad, just as God in His three and oneness is akkad. Are you with me? So part of the adventure of being married, of marriage, is discovering how our unique relationship, you and your spouse, how does your unique pairing paint this picture of oneness, of the akkad of God, How does your story help tell the story of the oneness of God? Now, I just want to pause here for a moment and say, in the midst of this, I don't want us to lose the formational potential within all aspects of life. I didn't get married until I was 28. Singleness formed me in many ways. Patience, discipleship, discipline, in some deep and lasting friendships. I got to go on crazy adventures and I even helped plant a church during that stage of life. Parenting has maybe taught me more about how selfish and self-absorbed I am than anything else, about how much formation still needs to happen in my heart and my character. Marriage has certainly taught me a ton. It keeps teaching me about love and sacrifice and being for the good of the other. Jim Elliot said, Wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there all there my paraphrase of that is this whatever stage or phase of life you are in be in that stage embrace it for all that it has to teach you so if you are a college student if you are single if you are married if you are a parent if you are a boss if you are an employee be that be all there and let it form you and shape you into the likeness of jesus Because it will form you and shape you into something. So the question is, what are you being formed and shaped into the likeness of? Be all there. Allow it to form you into the likeness of Christ. Second, we embrace fidelity and covenant commitment as radical acts of discipleship. So there are a lot of different ways that marriage can us but the church has traditionally seen the covenant commitment right that this this thing called marriage is not just a contract not just a piece of paper that we sign our name to it is a covenant commitment a promise of fidelity to stay true to those vows to that covenant that promise is core to the formational gift of marriage One of God's gifts to us as creatures, created in His image, is the gift of boundaries and limits. Which sounds offensive to our 21st century Western sensibilities. We object to boundaries and limits because we like our freedom and our options. But it's actually within limits that we have great freedom and creativity. In music, there's a limited number of notes, but an infinite number of songs that can be played. Commitment to one person, it might feel stifling. It might sound like we're forsaking other options. And in a sense, we are. But it's in saying yes to that person, that one person, that we get the gift of freedom. The gift of exploring everything together for as long as you both shall live. It's the the covenant. It's the promise to stick together that gives you the freedom to risk, to go on adventures, to serve the kingdom of God with wholeheartedness, knowing you are in this thing together. Now, finally, we embrace assuming the best, being a fan of your spouse, and guarding your heart. I kind of joked last Sunday about how this is not like an advice sort of series where we give you four steps to find the one or the three things you need to do to have a happy marriage. But I think that these are some real practical things that can be very helpful in maintaining that oneness and that unity in your marriage. So first of all, assuming the best. Why is this important? Well, it's really easy to assume the worst. Am I right? I I can't believe he's late again. How could she leave this thing lying around yet again? They hate me. I'm in trouble. We go to the worst, right? We go to the worst. Instead of assuming the best, well, he must be stuck in traffic. She must have been in a rush. No big deal. They'll get to it later. Assume the best. Now, assuming the best doesn't mean that we have this over-spiritualized, unrealistic, you know, optimistic, everything is awesome all the time kind of perspective. Doesn't mean that we need to have uh, or avoid having hard conversations with our spouse. It just means you give grace until you have more information. Start by assuming the best until proven otherwise. <coughs> so we assume the best and then we're a fan. We're a fan of our spouse. It drives me nuts when I hear people criticize their spouses, especially in casual conversation. I'm sure you've had these experiences or or you know these kinds of people. I have an aunt and an uncle who've actually been married for a very long time, longer than I've been alive. But when you're with them, it's just like bickering and nitpicking and they're just not fans of each other. Now, I, uh, I like running but I'm a terrible runner. Like no one is going to record me running down the street and uh, use, you know, my style, you know, on YouTube to teach other people how to run. I find joy in it, but it's not because I'm talented or good at it. I I'm, I'm not winning races or anything like that. I just do it because it brings me joy. But when my wife talks about my running, she talks about it. Like I'm a pro like, Oh yeah, Steve, he, he's a runner. I'm like no, I'm not. I just like drag my body down the street. But <laughs> the way that she talks about it, you would think that I, you know, was was running the Boston Marathon or whatever. The way she speaks about it, Steve is a runner. It, it breathes life. It gives me confidence. She's a fan for your spouse, root them on, fuel their passions, be a fan of them, learn their interests. I now enjoy uh, things like Mariah Carey and uh, unnamed television shows. I know a lot about USC sports and I can tell you about physical therapy stuff because I find my wife super interesting and fun and I'm just a fan. And so I get into the things that she is into, except for country music. It's good to have boundaries in marriage as well. But be a fan of your spouse. And then finally, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Now, if you're paying attention, you're like, hey, wait a minute, you said that last week. And yes, yes, I did. Because this is not just a single person thing. Remember what we said? This is not dating advice. We guard our hearts because the heart is the deepest part of us. The heart is your energies, your passions, your true self. And as the the writer says, from that, everything else flows. One of the best gifts you can give your spouse is a guarded heart, an undivided heart, a whole heart. The other aspect of this is to guard your heart is to give your heart, your energies, your passions, your true self to what is most real. To protect it with the truth that the Trinitarian creator of the universe who makes himself known to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth loves you and wants to be in community with you. Give your heart to Jesus. Follow in his ways. Be formed in his way of life and everything will flow from that. What kind of story are you telling with your life? Now, when we talk about human relationships, one of the underlying messages that we can receive is that we just need to try harder or do more. Spend more time with people, be a better friend, do more for your formation, work on your marriage. It sounds like work, 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 try hard, try hard, try hard. My hope and prayer as we come towards this moment of communion and as we come towards the end of this counterculture conversation, my hope and prayer is that the invitation to be countercultural is not an invitation to do more or to work harder, but to receive more. To receive the love and grace and mercy and community that the Trinitarian God offers to us. Because our culture, especially here in Davis, says what? Work harder, do more, achieve more. And it just runs completely counter to the grace of God. The grace of God, which is the foundation of the good news about Jesus. 1 John 4 says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live, notice this, through him not through our kids, not through our achievements, not through our careers, that we might live through Jesus. The writer goes on to say, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's about receiving and responding, receiving and responding, not working harder, not doing more, not achieving more. Receive and respond. So wherever you are today, grab those those, uh, communion elements that you might have with you. What kind of story is your life telling? And what do you need to receive today? What do you need to receive? Not what do you need to work harder on. What do you need to receive today? today. This is all about receiving the good gifts of God. We love because He loved us first. As we close in worship, whenever you're ready, take those elements, the body and blood of Christ. Receive the gift. The truth that God has loved us first. Well, thanks again for joining the digital gathering today. Let us go out With this blessing over us, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Grace and peace, friends.